Matthew chapter 27, and this morning we're going to be considering verses 51 through verse 56. So Matthew 27, beginning at verse 51, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Seek the Lord's blessing on this His holy word. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks again that you have been so abundantly gracious to us, that you have given us your holy word, that it is the living word, and that when accompanied by the Holy Spirit, it truly brings about the conviction, transformation, leading into salvation in Christ. And so we just pray, Father, for your blessing upon this word. And we do pray that as it goes forth, that it would truly find within our hearts that rich and fertile soil which will bring about a great and abundant fruit for your glory. Father, we pray for your blessing upon your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When Jesus died, it was the darkest day. The eternal Son of God who had come in the flesh to reveal, uh, to redeem His people was crucified on a cross like a criminal. The promised Son of David, the, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ, came to His own people. But they rejected Him and nailed Him to that cross. When Jesus died, those who did believe and who did trust in Him. Even His closest disciples were filled with unspeakable grief and sorrow, left to wonder whether their faith had been in vain. When Jesus died, it appeared as though Satan gained the victory, and that sin and death would continue to reign in the world. When Jesus died, a heavy darkness not only covered the earth, but also the hearts of men. When Jesus died, was there any remaining hope and comfort? Well, praise God, there was, and indeed there still is. For what the world didn't know, what Satan didn't know, what the Romans didn't know, and what the, the Jews and their leaders didn't know, and certainly what the disciples did know, and yet greatly struggled to comprehend, was that the death of Jesus was necessary. 
It was necessary because it had been appointed from before the foundation of the, of the world. That God would send His only begotten Son to, to die for undeserving sinners. So that they, indeed, so that we might be saved and redeemed. When Jesus died, God's plan for our salvation was accomplished. Old things would pass away and new things would come. And this is what we see in our passage this morning as Matthew records for us some significant events that occurred at the very moment that Jesus died. Events that would demonstrate that what Jesus came to do was truly accomplished. But before we consider those critical events, it's important to first consider the impact of Jesus' death and truly all that we gain from it. When Jesus died, again, something old was made complete and something new was given. The old covenant established on the law brought condemnation to a sinful people who were unable to keep it perfectly as God had required But with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and especially in His death, a new and better covenant is now established. A covenant based on the mediatorial work of Jesus, which brings grace and help to undeserving sinners. And we know that Jesus had promised His disciples that He would secure this new covenant. Remember, just... uh, Less than 24 hours before this, when Jesus was gathered with His disciples in the upper room to celebrate the Passover, the very meal that was symbolic of the Old Covenant, Jesus then established a new meal to mark the New Covenant. Matthew 26, we read that He took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is My blood of the New Covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins." The Lord's Supper is that new covenant meal which we celebrate to not only remember Christ's death and and what He accomplished for us, but also to be strengthened and renewed by His grace so that we might be faithful in the calling with with which He has placed upon us. But note that with this new covenant, a shedding of blood was required, symbolized by the cup. And Jesus here claims that it would be His blood that would be shed for us for the remission of sins. So that our salvation wouldn't be accomplished by our own law-keeping or our own works, or even wouldn't be accomplished by the shedding of our own blood and the receiving of the just judgment that our sin deserves. No, Jesus died the death we deserved in our place for our sins. So that salvation is only through His accomplished work by His grace alone. The writer to the Hebrews reminds us of this in Hebrews 9, verse 15, saying, For this reason He is the mediator of the new covenant, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. 
And here we see that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And the word covenant here is also the same word that the writer here uses for testament. Testament, and you think here of a last will and testament. right? An agreement that is graciously made, but one that can't take effect until the one who made it dies. And once they die, then the benefits that they promised in that will and testament, that is in the covenant are then released to those who've been appointed. In the Old Covenant, the righteous requirement of the law was that death would come to the sinner. But in the New Covenant, we find that Jesus took that righteous requirement of the law upon Himself and suffered the death that we deserved so that we might receive the blessed promises God has given to His people long ago. And so the covenant promises were secured for us when Jesus died. And related to this, when Jesus died, we have the forgiveness of sins made available to us. Remember all the way back in the book of Genesis, in in Genesis 2, before the fall, God had warned Adam that if he disobeyed, then he would surely die. And of course we know what happens in chapter 3. Eve was tempted by Satan. Adam ate of the, fr- the fruit. And all mankind then descended from them through ordinary generation fell into sin. That's the great curse of the fall. That we're born in sin. And come forth from the womb speaking lies and rebellion against God. And Paul reminds us in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. Even as God had warned Adam. Now, in the Old Covenant, God graciously permitted sacrifices of animals to atone or to cover over one's sins. And again, we see this right in the beginning, after the fall. God made clothes for Adam and Eve out of animal skins to cover over the shame of their nakedness. A picture of covering over their sins, thus graciously delaying the just punishment of death that He said they would endure. Later, that sacrificial system was codified in the law. And especially on the Day of Atonement was the one day a year where God graciously received the sacrifices for the sins of all the people. But this had to be repeated every year because the people continued to sin year after year, day after day. And also because the reality was that though God graciously accepted the animal sacrifice as an atonement for sin, we discover in Hebrews 10, it's actually not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. It wasn't possible, you see, because man was the one who sinned, not the bulls and the goats. And the law requires that the one who sins must suffer the judgment for that sin, which of course is death. And so it was necessary that Jesus Christ, our great high priest, should die on the cross to fully, once and for all, atone for our sins. To cover them over, to to blot them out and remove them far away from us as far as the east is from the west. When Jesus died... 
true and complete forgiveness of sin was secured. And thirdly, when Jesus died, reconciliation with God was now made possible. You see, sin separates us from God. And again, this was marked by, by Adam and Eve being banished from, from Eden and the presence of God in the garden. You see, because before the fall, Adam and Eve enjoyed this intimate fellowship with God, walking with Him in the garden day by day. But sin changed all that. Sin is a great offense to a most holy God. And so Adam and Eve and all mankind have then lost that close, intimate fellowship with God, their Creator. But Jesus... The Son of God come in the flesh. He was the perfect mediator between God and man. Now a mediator is simply one who goes between two parties in order to bring about and effect reconciliation. And since Jesus was fully man, well then he could certainly pay the penalty for sin that God required for man because man was the one who sinned. But since Jesus was also fully God, He alone could bear the wrath and curse of God for sin. Not His sin, for He had none, but for our sins, and indeed for the sins of the whole world. And so only Jesus could be that mediator as the God-man. And a helpful illustration of this reconciliation, and really it's a simple way to, to share the gospel with someone, is this picture of a bridge. And you, so you have, you can try to imagine uh, two, two great uh, peaks, two mountains. And on the one, we have God and His justice and in His perfect holiness. And then over on the, the corresponding peak, you have mankind who is in His fallen and sinful nature and in rebellion against God and in rebellion against God's law, who is dead in His sins and transgressions the one true, holy, living God on one side and dead, sinful men on the other. And between those two peaks is a a huge chasm with with no way across. There's no way to get from one, one peak to the other. There's a great wall of separation between a most holy God and sinful man. But you see, then Christ comes and He is the mediator And He comes, and even as His arms were stretched out there hanging on the cross, He has now graciously provided a bridge. A bridge, a way of access to God's glorious and holy presence once again. So that the sinful man can now come to that holy God, but only by crossing that bridge. Only through Christ. Only through the death of Christ. And so truly when Jesus died, peace and reconciliation with God was made possible. Peter says this in 1 Peter 3, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Christ's death on the cross provides the bridge over the gap 
so that we can once again enter into God's holy presence. Well, then finally, when Jesus died, not only was this reconciliation made possible for, for God's people in the Old Covenant, the Jews who believed, but it was now also made possible for all, for Jew and Gentile alike. You see, prior to Christ's death and the religion of the Jews, not all had equal access to God. And this was symbolically, or maybe not even not so symbolically, but deliberately uh, displayed in the layout of the temple. You see, in the temple there were various courts, which got increasingly more exclusive the closer that you got to the holy place and the holy of holies. The outermost court was the court of the Gentiles. And this was where the God-fearers, those who had converted to Judaism, where they could come and they could worship the, the God of Israel. People like Cornelius, that we just read about in Acts. If he went to Jerusalem, he could go into this court of the Gentiles. Well, then after the court of the Gentiles, there was the court of women. And this is where the faithful Jewish women could worship. And then after that, there was the court of Israel, which excluded all but the men aged 20 years and older. And then there was within the temple building the sanctuary, where only the priests and the Levites could enter as they ministered before the Lord. And in that sanctuary was, for example, the, the candlesticks and the incense and the, uh, the showbread, the table of showbread. But then there was one more court, so to speak. The most holy place. That was the innermost court. It was the place where the Ark of the Covenant resided and uh, above that, the mercy seat and between the cherubim. It symbolized God's presence amid the people. And only the high priest could enter through that veil to that court, to to that inner court And he could only do that once per year on the Day of Atonement to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. And so we see just in the very layout of the temple, there was this exclusion. that The closer you got, the more exclusion there was. But as we'll soon see, when Jesus died on the cross... Salvation and the entering into the presence of God was now made possible for all kinds of people. And Paul describes this in in Galatians 3 where he says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, sadly, today we know this passage is often ripped out of its context and abused and used to support the uh, variety of, of uh, false teaching, including the obliteration of, of gender roles. But this isn't what Paul is saying. The unity and the oneness in Christ doesn't mean that we are all suddenly the same and have the same gifts and we have the same duties and obligations or responsibilities. But no, it rather means that we each come to Christ in the very same way. That there's no distinction in regards to how we're to access God. 
We're all, regardless of gender, ethnicity, or station in life, we all have equal access to God through the one mediator, Jesus Christ. This free access was secured for all when Jesus died. Indeed, as we look to our passage this morning, we see two examples of this monumental shift. But first, the door must be opened. Or rather, the veil must be parted. When Jesus died, at the precise moment when He breathed His last, the veil in the temple was torn in two. Verse 51, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now again, this was the veil which separated the Holy of Holies from from the sanctuary. The veil served as a partition to remind the people of God of, of His holiness. And that they couldn't just, because of their sin, they couldn't just approach them. But it also was there for their protection. Because it blocked from their presence and their eyesight the holiness and the glory of God. So that they couldn't see Him in His glory. Lest they be struck down dead. And again, as we mentioned, only the high priest, and that only once a year on the Day of Atonement, was permitted to part the veil and enter in to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat above the ark. And this veil was huge. It measured uh, 60 feet long and was 30 feet wide, and it was almost an inch thick. And certainly any wear and tear on the veil would have been repaired by the Levites so that the veil was meticulously preserved. But at the precise time when Jesus died, the veil was torn in two from top to bottom. And this would have been extraordinary aside from from its size and thickness because the top would have been the strongest part of the veil. And again, the, the bottom could get tattered and a tear could go up. But for it to go down from top to bottom was truly a great miracle. It's as if God Himself had reached down from heaven and tore the veil in half, opening the most holy place for all to see and for all to enter in. When Jesus died around 3 p.m., the priest would have been busy in the temple sanctuary preparing for the evening sacrifice. And so when this temple veil was torn, certainly it would have been witnessed by them and they would have seen it because they would have been there busying themselves preparing for the sacrifice. Now truly, if their hearts were willing to receive it, this was a sign to them that there was no longer any need for the old Levitical priesthood. There was no longer a need for sacrifice. The old system, as we mentioned, has now become obsolete because of the priestly work of Christ in giving His own life as a once-for-all perfect sacrifice and atoning death on the cross. The tearing of the veil symbolizes to all who would believe that there's now open and free access to God through Christ. And specifically, it was because of His death on the cross. 
This is the imagery the writer to the Hebrews gives in Hebrews 10. Saying this, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh. It's just from this verse that we get the, the name of our congregation, a new and living way. The veil has been torn and opened. We can enter boldly through that new and living way, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Boldly and confidently we enter into His presence by His flesh which was broken for us on the cross. But there was another miraculous sign when Jesus died. Verse 51, And the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, there's two things that happened here. First, there was a, a great earthquake, again, at the precise moment of Christ's death. There was splitting rocks and, and opening up of graves. And presumably... That heavy darkness that was over all the earth for three hours likely suddenly cleared up. And the fact that the very foundation of the earth shook demonstrates really the global significance of Christ's death. Not only for people of every nation, tribe, and tongue, but even for all creation. For the death of Jesus marks the beginning of the new creation, the restoration, and the reversal of the effects of the fall beginning at this time and then made complete on the last great day when Christ returns and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. The second thing that happens is the opening of the graves and this great resurrection. Now this is a little bit of a difficult passage and there are many uh, perspectives as to how to interpret this, especially the timing. Did they raise up from the dead right at the time when Jesus died on the cross? Or were the graves opened and then they rose again and then went into the cities uh, after Jesus' resurrection? Well, what seems best is to consider that the earthquake broke open the graves at the time Jesus died. Right? Meaning that they, they weren't buried like we are six feet down. Uh, they just were kind of lowly buried and then covered pot with piles of rocks. Or as Jesus was laid in a tomb or in a sepulcher, um, well, many of these graves, they opened and the rocks fell. And they were exposed. But then, and of course because the next day was the Sabbath, Well, there was not going to be any way for the people to repair those graves. But then on the third day, after Jesus rises from the dead, then suddenly those open graves give forth their dead, and they also then, there's a resurrection of the dead at that time. Not everyone, but a few of those who had believed in Christ are now risen from the dead, giving us a picture of the final resurrection of the dead which would come at the end of the age when Christ returns. But I think Matthew mentions the resurrection here, not to say that it happened immediately when Christ died on the cross, but he mentions it here to to closely tie it to Christ's death. And so that the very key lesson and the reason, the thing that we should really take from this sign is that when Jesus died... 
in his death and through his death, life would come to those who are dead. First to those who are dead in sin and transgressions, and then to those who are dead in the grave with the resurrection of these at the time of Christ, again being a precursor to the resurrection of the dead in the last great day. The death of Jesus makes new life possible. And that's what we glean from this. And so with these signs, we see access to God made possible for all and new and everlasting life made possible to all when Jesus died. All, regardless of ethnicity or gender, can enjoy the blessings and the benefits of Christ's death. We see this now in two very significant examples of those who previously had limited access, if any at all. Verse 54, So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. The Roman centurion and the soldiers with him, they were Gentiles. They were outside of the covenant community of Israel. Strangers to the promises of God. There's no reason to believe that these soldiers were Jewish converts or God-fearers. Indeed, they would have engaged in the mockery of Jesus and very likely had taken part in the abuse of Jesus back when they were in the barracks. They were no friends of Jesus. But as the centurion stood there, watching all of these things, right in front of Jesus, he could see and hear every grimace of pain, every word that Jesus cried out, He could see Jesus' patient endurance, his silence amidst the mocking and the reviling. He would see his great emotional and spiritual strength. He was also witness to the great sign of the darkness that lasted for three hours and preceded the final death cry of Jesus. He even heard every word of hope and forgiveness that Jesus spoke, not only to the thief on the cross, but even to the the people. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then suddenly, just as he saw Jesus breathe his last, that very moment there was a great earthquake, and rocks were splitting, and nearby graves were open. He witnessed all this, and it appears to have had a significant impact upon him. And so suddenly those with him declare, truly this was the Son of God. Again, this was from a Gentile. But having been an eyewitness to all that has taken place, the centurion sees Jesus and all the suffering which he endured, the mockings, the lies, and the injustices. And does he see someone who got what he deserved? No. He sees one who is truly righteous. He sees the Son of God. Now some question whether this was a passing comment or whether it was a true heartfelt confession of faith. And some say that, that, well, the centurion just spoke and he didn't realize on a heart level what he was saying. And it's true, we don't really know for sure. We don't know anything about, further about this centurion. But we do know this. In 1 John chapter 4, John says this. Whoever confesses 
that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. You see, because sinful man needs the Holy Spirit to reveal these truths. These things are spiritually discerned and not discerned by a carnal man or a sinful man. And so the Spirit of God needs to be active to reveal these things. And this confession was truly a spiritual truth and it must have been revealed by God. Where else? Even as Jesus had confirmed to Peter regarding the confession that He made Back in chapter 16, Jesus said to to Peter, when Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus confirmed, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Only God can reveal this truth. And certainly we see the centurion also used the word truly, right? It means that there were no doubts. He said this in all sincerity and truth. And so it surely seems as though this was a true confession. Because the true identity of Jesus Christ, that He is the Son of God, is only fully revealed in the cross and what He accomplished there, and then especially on the third day when He rose again from the dead. This centurion, in light of this confession like the thief on the cross, became a son of God and an heir to Christ with glory when Jesus died. A second example of the open free access to God now made available to all is given in verses 55 and 56 in connection with the women who were gathered around watching from a distance when Jesus died. Now, in the first century, <clears throat> women were considered, really, in a lot of ways, as second-class citizens in Jewish society and culture and even in religion. But what Jesus accomplished in His death would change all that. Indeed, the change was already taking effect. You see, this group of faithful women had already had access to Jesus as they had ministered to Him and, and the other disciples while they were back in Galilee. And they have been following around with Him throughout their journeys, even following Him all the way to Jerusalem. But it's their specific mention here at the cross of Golgotha in the very distinct and noticeable absent of any mention of the twelve disciples the mention of the names of these women is very, very significant. Now we know that John was likely the only disciple present, at least that we know of. Uh, John, he records in his own gospel account uh, the charge that Jesus gives to him from the cross to care for his mother Mary. But none of the other disciples are mentioned. In Luke's gospel account, he just mentions that there were acquaintances, but he doesn't mention any names. Remember, all the disciples, that is twelve, had scattered when the shepherd was struck. Only the names of the faithful women who tirelessly served and ministered to him. They're here with him to the very bitter end. And they leave a distinct legacy. And indeed, this isn't the last that we hear of these women. These women were the chief witnesses of the death 
of the burial, as we'll see, Lord willing, next week, and then of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? Three pivotal events of the Christian faith. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're witnessed by women. And so these women have a great legacy. But more importantly, they're evidence now that freedom of access to God had been given to all types of people when Jesus died. Beloved of God, truly we can't say enough about the blessings and the benefits that we that were secured for us when Jesus died. Deliverance, redemption, salvation, however you want to term it, assurance of covenant promises, the forgiveness of sin and peace and reconciliation with God our Creator. Christ has accomplished it. He's paid the penalty that we deserved. He removed the condemnation of sin and death that Adam first brought upon us. The bridge has been built and put in place. That huge gap separating us from a holy God has now been closed. The veil has been torn. The barriers have been broken down. And Jesus Christ has provided the freedom of access to union and communion with God. When Jesus died, it was so that we might live. So that we might live not only now by His grace in this life, but so that we might live forever in the midst of His glorious presence and doing all that we do, both now and even then, to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Oh Lord God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks for your word and your truth. And we are reminded this morning of what you accomplished for us when Jesus, your beloved son, died on the cross for our sins. Lord, we are truly overwhelmed by the blessings of your grace and mercy when we consider our own sinfulness and our own unworthiness. And yet you have had mercy upon us when we didn't deserve it. And you provided a way of access to you. That we can have peace and reconciliation. We can have the forgiveness of sins. We can enjoy all the covenant promises that you have made to your people. That we can enjoy that close fellowship with you and with one another. And that this isn't just for one particular group of people but that these blessings are available to all, to people of every tribe, nation, and tongue, of every station in life, either man or woman. And we pray, O Lord, that You would impress these truths upon us, drawing us all closer to You in our faith and in our understanding, and especially equipping us to go forth into the world to carry this gospel, to find those whom you've appointed to salvation, to share this gospel message, whoever they are, wherever they may be, and that they would come to you and give glory upon uh, and give glory to your name as you have called us. And so we just praise you and thank you, Lord, for these things. And we pray for your blessing upon your word by your spirit. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.